0: Let's uh, turn to uh, Hosea chapter 14, and we're going to finish this study before we begin Joel here in just a few moments. Um, And we want to take a real careful look at this last chapter in Hosea because we've seen that the most important thing about a man is what he thinks about God. Our view of God will determine everything that we do, say, or think ultimately, and ultimately it will determine our our, uh, eternal destiny. So what we think about God is so important, and we've seen, first of all, that that he is a gracious God. And isn't it, isn't it great that our study began with Hosea, the first of the minor prophets, who teaches us about the grace of God. And this wonderful story about Hosea and Gomer, the prophet who marries a prostitute, just pictures for us the relationship between a holy God who marries people like us and calls us his bride. So we've seen the picture of that. It's a gracious picture. We saw that it's so gracious that it's scandalous that people can't believe it. Most people grow up thinking that if there is a heaven, people who go to heaven are those who, who do good things, who are good people. The good people go to heaven. The scandal of God's grace is that bad people go to heaven who simply trust in Jesus Christ. Of course, when they trust in Him, He, he slowly cleans them up, makes them better as time goes on. But that's the scandal of God's grace. And then we saw last week there's a severity to it as well. That when God calls us into His family as His children, as bad as we are, He begins to discipline us in a very severe way. Why? Because He loves us. He wants to be sure we get home safely. He also wants to be sure that we glorify Him. He also wants to be sure that we enjoy this life. And the way you're going to enjoy this life is by walking with Him. So there's a severity to His love. We saw that discipline last time. We don't mess around with God. We fear Him at the same time that we love Him. Now we want to look at the, the splendor of God's grace. And we pick that up especially in, uh, in chapter 14 uh, where uh, it actually goes all the way back to chapter 9 because it has to do with His warnings. And I've given you a handout of those four basic sections in 9 10 11 12 13 there are so many details there that i just want to hand it out to you in written form so you've got that this morning and then we'll discuss on the back side of that page some of the questions here in just a moment that arise out of hosea but if you'll look at chapter 14 this is the this is the grand conclusion to it all god loves us but he is going to discipline us sometimes the whole nation of israel will come under judgment because of their disobedience and then in the end God promises He is going to restore us, no matter how severe the discipline. So let's take a look at Hosea 14. It begins with the word shuv. I guess in English you'd spell that S-H-U-V. It just means to turn. And that's the first word here in chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Or turn to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. All right, let's stop right there. What he's saying is in this this section, God is wooing us. God is wooing us. He warned us. Chapters 9, 10 through 13. Chapter 9 through 13, He warned us. Now He's going to woo us. What does He do to woo us? He tells us how to be reconciled. He tells us how to come to Him. And Of course, you remember in chapter 6, the first three verses, we looked at that hypocritical turning to the Lord. That shallow, superficial, not sincere. Here you have a sincere turning. And that word shuv is used 23 times in Hosea. Do you think it's a key word for him? This is the whole point. Turn. God's pleading with us, wooing us. Come back to me. Uh, I'm, I'm the one, remember I'm the one who loves prostitutes. I'll love you. So just turn to me. And then secondly, we see that we, we are to ask for forgiveness. So, so the first thing that we must do is simply turn. Turn away from our sins. We'll talk about this a little bit more as we look at Joel. But basically what we're doing, we're walking a a lifestyle this way, doing what we want to do for our own self-gratification, for our own self-promotion. We're involved in all kinds of things that satisfy us and please us. And what it means to become a follower of Christ, you just simply turn this way. Oh, yes, you'll be tempted. You'll turn your head. Sure, I want to leave that. I'm not sure I want to. You'll have your moments. But basically there's a basic turning in the trajectory of your life from going this direction to this direction. And then you simply ask for forgiveness. Notice in verse 2, he says, take words with you. (laughs) Isn't that a great way of putting it? Don't go speechless. Take some words with you when you turn to the Lord. And what words do you use? Well, you ask him for forgiveness. He says in verse uh, 2, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously. Lord, make your scandalous grace apply to me. Lord, this grand compassion that you have for sinners This willingness you have to cancel our debts, cancel my debts. Just ask him. Leave your finger in the Bible there and turn back to to Psalm 51. uh, And I'll give you the page number. It's page 857, 856. And this is a uh, just put a little marker there because we may turn back to Psalm 51 here in a moment. But notice the first verse. This is this is a psalm that David wrote after he committed his whopper, you know, adultery and murder. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, had him murdered rather, uh, Uriah the Hittite, so that he could have Bathsheba. And I mean, that's that's bad. Uh, and then he writes this psalm when Nathan the prophet comes to him and explain, gives him, tells him a little parable and points out that David is the sinner. And David said, real simply, I have sinned. And then pens this psalm. Now, just look at the first words of it: "Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin." There you go. Just simply ask him, gentlemen. It does not take a rocket scientist to get this. This is real simple, lower shelf stuff. You be bad, he be good. All you have to do is ask. And if you ask sincerely from your heart to cancel the sins in your life, all the punishment due you, just ask Him. He has never in all of history, nor will He ever in the future, turn down one man who sincerely asks for forgiveness. Not one. Never turns them down. Now, there is such a thing as an insincere request. And we looked at that last time in chapter 6. with someone who sincerely asks Him is always heard because God is infinitely compassionate. So it just begins with, take some words with you. Here here are some words. Lord, please forgive my sins. There, I just gave you some words. Take those with you today and just go to the Lord. That's what Hosea says. Take some words with you and return to the Lord. Not complicated theological words. You don't have to deliver a lecture on how much you know about Hosea or Joel or Amos or anybody. Just ask it for forgiveness. Real simple. And then ask to be received as a worshiper. He says, not only forgive all our sins, but receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. What's he saying? Receive me so that I may be your worshiper. So ask for forgiveness and then ask to be enlisted. Ask to be enlisted in the choir. Choir. Yeah. Because when you come to Him, you become His worshiper. That is what He is doing. Uh, In fact, Jesus... Put it this way in John chapter four, he says, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. And then he said, for the father seeketh such to worship him. Do you realize what you could put it in many ways? But one way in which you could put the whole task of salvation is God, the father has sent his son to recruit worshipers, eternal worshipers. And that's what we are. So you ask for forgiveness and you ask him to enlist you, to take you into his band of disciples, which will be the worshipers of Jehovah. So just ask. And then you'll notice in verse 3a, we just read, we renounce what we call auto-salvation strategies. God has been excoriating them through Hosea the prophet for several chapters about depending on political alliances with either Egypt or Assyria to try to protect their rear ends instead of calling upon him in prayer and asking him to protect them, they've been thinking they could protect themselves with these fancy political alliances, making deals instead of repentance. And now look what happens here. He says, here's some more words you can take with you. You can say that Assyria cannot save us. That's a really good start. You just confess that your way of promoting yourself, building your own lifestyle, making it big, Cannot work. Been there. Done that. Lord, I've tried it. Doesn't work. Lord, I now believe that these other methods don't work. So you see, I'm not only turning to the Lord because I want to be forgiven. I'm turning to the Lord because I want another lifestyle. I want another way of thinking. I want to shift my paradigm. I want a new life. And I am renouncing the old way of doing things. So... If you are coming to the Lord, you will look not only for forgiveness, you will look for total repentance, which is a turning to Him, endeavoring ever after to lead a new life. That's all part of the, of the story, all part of the plan. So you can't just say, now, Lord, I'm over here living like the devil. I'm sure that you're good and gracious. You'll forgive me, excuse me. And now that, that conversation's over, excuse me just a minute, I have a little affair. I want to you know, continue over here. That is not sincere turning to him. It's not a sincere request for forgiveness. Because a sincere request for forgiveness is based on grieving, not yourself. It's based on grieving him. It'd be like going home to your wife and say, honey, I'm really sorry. I looked at some pornography and I just want you to know I'm sorry. And I want you to know I'll be sorry tomorrow too, uh, you know, at the end of the day. Uh, I'll come, and I'll, come, I'll be sure to come home and apologize. But So you have, you have a resolve in your heart that you're going to do the same damn thing tomorrow that you did today. And it's damned. It's cursed by God. And you, you already resolve that you're going to go do it. That is not sincere repentance. Now, you can sincerely repent today and fall again tomorrow. But it's not because you intended to. This is subtle but it has to do with the intentions of your heart. So you can see, take some words with you, ask to be forgiven, ask to be recruited and enlisted, and ask, or rather renounce, your own strategies for saving yourself. Everybody has them. If you talk to anybody and ask them if they believe in heaven or hell, about 85% of the people will tell you they believe in heaven or hell. Then if you ask them about who's going to heaven or hell, and you give them a number of people, and I've seen studies done on this, uh, about 10 years ago, uh, there was a poll done, Do you believe that Bill Clinton's going to heaven, Do you believe that Hillary Clinton's going to heaven, Do you believe Billy Graham's going to heaven, Mother Teresa, and you could, you could get all these people lined up and, you know, you start from about 55%, you know, you can get up about, up to about 77%, uh, n- based on who you name, that the people in this country think are going to heaven. You want to know who the number one person was who the people thought was going to heaven? themselves. Beyond Mother Teresa, beyond Billy Graham, the numbers were in the 80 percent, high 80 percent for themselves. Everybody has an auto salvation strategy. Everybody has kind of worked this thing around so that whatever is required to get to heaven, that's what I'm doing. And so what I am doing is what is required to get to heaven. That's how Our rebellious brains work. So if you ask somebody how to get to heaven, what they'll basically tell you is why they think they're going to heaven. And that will be their advice to you about how to get to heaven. So we've got to renounce all that crud that has to do with our own desire to promote ourselves and to relieve ourselves in our own consciences and turn to the living God who has revealed to us heaven and hell and how to get there. So renounce all this stuff that all of us are doing all the time. And then we renounce our idolatry. Not only our strategies to be saved where we say Assyria cannot save us, but then also say this to the Lord. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made for in you, the fatherless, find compassion. So, Lord, we will no longer say my job is the most important thing in my life. We'll no longer say my retirement account is my security. We'll no longer say, my looks is the most important thing to me, my body. We'll no longer say, my prestige in this community and what other people think of me is what I'm really going to live for. I will not bow down to those gods anymore. I will not put them on the top shelf. I will smash those idols and put the Lord on the top shelf. He will be my God. That's all involved in turning to the Lord. So none of this cheap, superficial stuff where we just simply... Oh, forgive me, Lord, and I'll come back next Sunday and pray the same prayer, and you can forgive me again. I know, I know you like to do that, and I'm kind of enjoying it myself. It cleanses my conscience. I get to do what I want to do Monday through Saturday. And Sunday, I just pray this prayer of confession. It all works so nicely. You know, it's right there in the prayer book. You know, I just no more of that. There's a total turning of the self to God. So that's what God is doing to woo us. He is telling us how to be reconciled. Now, notice, not only does he woo his people, but he wows his people. He warns us, he woos us, and he wows us. Now let's look at, it sounds like a dog, bow wow, something or another. Let's look at this now. Uh, verses 4 through 9, we'll finish up Hosea. He says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel he will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. So thus we say the splendor of God's grace. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Men will dwell again in his shade. He will flourish like the grain. He will blossom like a vine. And his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I'm like a green pine tree. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Okay, now the Lord's going to wow us with the splendor of His grace. He's going to show us in His kindness how to come to Him. He's basically saying, here's the ticket. You purchased a ticket. Here it is. This this will get you on board. So he's shown us that in the first three verses. Now he's going to show us what he's going to do. After he shows us what we need to do to come to him, he says, this is what I'm going to do when I restore you. The first thing is, he says, you will be healed. Out of God's love, you will be healed. A lot of people are wondering what this healing is like. But in verse 4, you see it. You'll be healed of your waywardness. You'll be healed of going astray. This is the only answer. You know, I'm, I'm like most of us. You know, at the beginning of every year, I've got my New Year's resolutions. I, I, do, I take advantage of a new year just like most of you do. And I write them down in my book and so on. But you know, those resolutions by themselves don't do anything but just discourage me by about January the 15th. But if, if there's a relationship with the Lord and I know that I'm forgiven for all my failures, including breaking my own resolutions and even more importantly, breaking His resolutions in the Scriptures, then I continue to come back to Him if I know that I'm forgiven. So if you're living in grace and forgiveness, you keep coming back to Him, and that's where your healing is, and that's what brings you off of your waywardness. Because you always know the door is open, you can come back to Him. And so it's self-condemnation that drives you away from the Lord, you're so ashamed you don't want to see Him again. But believing in His grace and love for you always brings you back to Him, which gets you on the path again. Most guys are being conquered by their sins because they can't talk about them. They can't own up to them. That's the number one problem among men. Just can't talk about it. Because of our sizable egos, we just can't deal with it. Because we have ourselves under condemnation. Once you're free from condemnation, you can find your own confidants, your own counselors, your own pastors and friends. And you can take people that are close to you and that you trust and you can begin to talk about your life and your failures and the things you struggle with. And you can begin to experience some freedom from these things. But it's living in the closet with the door locked, living this secret life that you're not willing to talk about because you can blame your mother and father. They shamed you when you were a little kid. You never could talk about failures or anything like that. But what it really is is your own doggone rebellion and your own self-salvation strategy. And so what happens is we'll be healed when we come to him because he'll open us up and we can talk and we can let the doctor go to work on us. You will be healed of your waywardness. You will prosper splendidly. Verses five and six that we read. He will be like the dew to Israel. He will water us. He will make us fruitful. He will make us grow. And that's exactly what happens When you sincerely walk with Jesus Christ, you can expect Him to take you in places you wouldn't go and give you strength you you didn't know you had and give you experiences you never dreamt of and give you opportunities to serve that you never would have dreamed of on your own. He will take you and grow you up. It's one of the most magnificent things. Some guys don't realize this, that they're out there. They think they're prospering and growing and flourishing. They have no idea what it's like to follow Jesus Christ and really to experience development personal self-development for the first time in their lives because they're being changed from the inside out. And only God's splendid grace, the grace of His gospel, can do that for you. And He will wow you. He will prosper you. And then you will protect others. It's interesting in verse 7, you will find that men will dwell in your shade. You say, I don't want men to dwell in my shade. I'll dwell in other people's shade. Not if you're following Christ. Because you, you begin to get really excited about taking on His ministry, His approach to this world, doing what He does. And you take great delight that you're able to help the poor. You take great delight that you're able to provide jobs for other people. That as you work hard and think creatively and expand your boundaries, that you're providing shade for a whole community. And that becomes very satisfying to you. As a, as a husband, you take great delight that you can protect your wife and provide for her. You take great delight that you can provide an environment for your children where they will flourish. And because you have the mind of Christ and you're thinking like he's thinking and you find this, this really becomes your great joy. You are a servant to everyone around you, even though in the world's view, some of you may be on the top of your organization. You may be the CEO. You may be the manager. You may be the director. You may be this head or the other. But what's really in your mind is that position is simply a place for you to serve Those who come under your shade. That's what happens when you come to the Lord. He'll just wow you with giving you great delight in a new perspective. In the way that you're dealing with your family, with your relationships, and with your work. And then you will bear much fruit. Now, what is this fruit? Well, it's, of course, figuratively spoken of here. But you, you will do things that are luscious to Him. It's fruit unto the Lord. It's also fruit to the world around you. Uh, There will be a holiness in your life. There's fruit to the Lord. There will be a multiplication factor in your life that you will influence others to want to know the Lord. They become the fruit of your life. All kinds of fruit. It just means that you will be providing something for someone else's delight beginning with the Lord. That's what a fruit tree does. You can pick the apples or the pears. Uh, It's for your delight off that tree. It's the same way with our lives. It just flourishes when you come to the Lord. Before you come to the Lord, or if if you're struggling with giving your life fully to the Lord, you're just going to find that you're interested in consuming everything that you can produce for yourself. That's the natural tendency. Or showing off your fruitfulness so everyone will be impressed at your generosity. But not really giving fruit for others freely until you come to the Lord. You will know the ways of the Lord, verse 9. He says, who is wise, he will realize these things. So when you come to the Lord, you will be the wise person. I didn't say you'd have more degrees than somebody else. I didn't say that you'd know history better than anybody else. I didn't say that you'd know all the philosophers of this world and be able to explain their uh, inner relationships like uh, nobody's business. I'm saying you'd be the wisest. What is a wise person? A wise person is one who knows the will of God. A wise person is the one who knows cause and effect. That if you do this, it's likely to lead to this. A wise person is the one who can see motive behind an act, who is discerning. A wise, you're given wisdom from the Lord. And James puts it, this, puts it this way. Does anyone want wisdom? Let him ask. We have not wisdom because we do not ask for it. Christ is the summation of wisdom. You take Christ into your soul. You take Christ into your mind. He will take the most uneducated person. And they will have the wisdom of the ages. And some of you have had the delight of becoming Christians in time to rear your little toddlers in Christ. And you know what I'm saying when I tell you, those of you who are young fathers, to have your four-year-old give you the wisdom of Christ through just receiving Him. Or your 12-year-old be able to give you a discerning comment or a suggestion or a piece of advice that just knocks your socks off. You know what I'm talking about. Wisdom is given to the children. Wisdom is given to the uneducated ditch digger. Wisdom is given simply to those who receive the Lord of wisdom into their hearts. That's the splendor of God's grace. That He will do for you things you could not possibly do for yourself with decades of higher education. He'll just simply give you wisdom. Now, if you'll look on the back of that, one of those sheets that we handed out, you will see some questions that we're suggesting uh, really ought to be asked. And we're not going to look at all these, but I, I would look, love for you to look at a few of them. First of all, we ask the question, is my religion, it's, it's a... The, the understanding question, or some questions to ask ourselves. Do we understand the scandal of God's grace toward us? Is my religion based on my performance or His performance? Am I deeply and consistently motivated by God's grace? Or am I motivated by guilt or fear? Do I, and how can I test myself? One way you can test yourself, you see on that third question under number one, do I consistently extend grace to others? If I'm judgmental, If I'm censorious, always censuring people, mostly critical of other people, aha, there's your hint. You probably are struggling with receiving God's graciousness toward you. You probably are thinking of Him as censuring and condemning you all the time. And you're just passing it on to others. Don't you see this in family generations? If you have a really critical father, by the time that kid's about four, he'll be criticizing all of his friends. And be bossing them around. There's no grace. So we see it in human relations. Well, if it's true there, that's just a picture of how your view of God will be replicated in the way that you treat people in relationships, because it's the way you treat yourself. You're condemning yourself, trying to motivate yourself with guilt and fear. You'll treat other people the same way. You wonder why some of your relationships in the workplace, you may, maybe you're seen as a harsh person. Maybe you're, you're not approachable. Maybe you're not accessible. Maybe it's because you really have not enjoyed the relief of God's grace and all compassionate heart toward you, and you're having a hard time giving that to others. So that could be sort of a one of the evidences in your life as to whether you're really experiencing His grace. Those are some questions you can ask. On the second category, as we move away from the scandal of God's grace and ask ourselves some basic questions about the severity of God's grace toward us, ask these questions. Do I know God as He really is? Or have I created a God in my mind with whom I can get along? Have I created a God who will certainly take me to heaven based on my own terms, and therefore I just create Him in my own image? Or have I really received the God who is? For example, people will speak of Jesus Christ with great admiration. 97% of the American populace says they admire Jesus. But do you realize who talked about hell more than any of the prophets in the Scriptures? Jesus. And how many of those 97% embrace completely what he says about the severity of God's character, His holiness, His awesome power, and His judgments? So we have to ask ourselves, have I received this gracious God as He really is, as a fearsome God as well? So we need to ask ourselves that question. Do I study His law? Is my personal and moral standard, has His standard become my standard? Have I embraced what he really cares about and made that my concern? Not just your favorite hobby horses, not just the pieces of righteousness that you really like to harp on, because frankly, down deep inside, you think you're pretty good at it. So you like to harp on those and you tell everybody, you know, these are my standards. This is what I think we really ought to do in the workplace. What it really is, it's a reflection of where you think you're doing fairly well. And, of course, that relieves you of any judgment because you're already performing above the standards in your own mind. No. The question is, is it your hobby horses, your favorite little moral principles, or are you really taking all the love of God and putting it into practice? Uh, one of my f- friends said to, to me, uh, he was a, he's a church leader, and he said one of his fellow church leaders is always harping on how, you know, religion is really a matter of the heart. The fact of the matter is, this other elder is, is so difficult to relate to. People are having a hard time relating to him. And, and so finally, one of the other leaders said, you know what? If it's a matter of the heart, you really ought to take that to heart. <laughs> yes. So we, we can have all kinds of mental concepts. The question is, though, do you embrace that standard for your own life and practice? That's a question to ask about the severity of God's grace. And have I mastered, lastly, the combination of love and reverence? Do I come to God with both fear and and gratitude? Do I come to Him with both love and reverence? Am I finding those those attributes that we talked about in my own approach to Him? Then lastly, on the splendor of God's grace, just look at that last question. How would my life change if I unswervingly believe God's promises to bless me for eternity? How would my life change if I believe that? If I took this great promise of the splendor of God's grace coming to perfect fruition where I will Be prosperous. I will be healthy. I will be completely satisfied. How would that change my life right now if I knew that's where I was headed? I think it might change your life more than you think. It's a good question to ask yourself from time to time. Okay, let's look at Joel. Turn the pages of your Bible just a little bit. And we're going to look at Joel. Let me say a few things about Joel before we begin this study. We may not finish everything on these first uh, chapter and a half today. We'll finish it next week. And by the way, two weeks from today, a friend of mine will be coming to speak to you. And uh, he is really a special communicator. His name is Gordon McDonald. Some of you have his, his books. Uh, um, Rocky, give me some of the titles here. Yeah, yeah, thank you. That's what I was trying to think of. Order, order, ordering Your Private World, which is a fabulous book. I mean, he's written probably 20 of them. A uh, very fine Christian author. He's also the uh, chairman of World Relief, uh, which is a, a, an evangelical uh, relief and development agency. Uh, and he's a very fine communicator. He'll be here two weeks from today. And we'll just let him talk about anything he wants to talk about. And he wants to talk about what his choice is to talk about how to develop resilience in your life as a man. And uh, I'll be getting the tape because I won't be here that morning. But you'll look forward to that. And I think his bio... Is either out there today or it will be out there next week. Okay, let's look at Joel. And you'll notice in the first verse, we're just simply told the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Now, folks, that is all we know about Joel, right there. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Now, with Hosea, we know a few more things. We at least know the time of his prophecy, we know to whom he was writing. He was writing to the northern kingdom, you remember, to to the northern kingdom of Israel. We know that it was before the Assyrian captivity of 722 B.C. because so much of the issues had to do with their trusting Assyria who was going to invade them. So we know that Joel was before that invasion. We also are told, I mean Hosea, and we were also told in Hosea the reigns of the kings under which he served. So we know a whole lot more about Hosea. We know a whole lot more about several of the prophets in the Bible, but there you have it on Joel. Uh, scholars have debated about what are the issues he's writing about, to whom is he writing, and when did he write. And it's anybody's guess. But I'm going to tell you what I think on this as I've done some reading on it. Uh, It seems to me that Joel is especially addressing the southern kingdom. And the reason is, let me give you several words that are used and the numbers of times that they're used, and this will make sense to you. He uses the word Zion, Zion you know, which is the hill of the Lord in Jerusalem, seven times. He uses the word Jerusalem six times. He uses the word Judah, which is the southern kingdom, six times. So although we don't know the date, this gives us a clear suggestion that one of Joel's key concerns is about Jerusalem, Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, he's talking, obviously, as you if you've read, Joel, about some locusts which are foretelling the human locusts, the army that is going to be coming. And we don't know exactly, once again, when this period might be. But it seems likely to a number of scholars that I think I agree with that this would be immediately before the coming of one of the Babylonian invasions. You have the final one in 586, but you have an invasion in 587. You have an invasion in 597, I believe it is. There are basically three Babylonian invasions. And a good number of scholars believe that this is an immediately pre-exilic, you know, right before the exile in 586. So Joel could probably be dated in early 6th century B.C., But surely, he is very interested in our understanding the meaning of an eternal perspective on history. He is very interested in our grasping the meaning of God's sovereignty over all of history and over all the nations. Not just Judah. God is sovereign over all the nations. So the parallel today would be Christ is ruler not just over the church. He is head of the church. But He is ruler of all the nations. The whole world and the whole universe. Joel is very concerned that the people of God grasp this. That our God is not a tribal deity. He is the sovereign Lord over all the nations. And every movement in history, every event of significance and insignificance, is orchestrated by this Yahweh, the Sovereign Lord. You will get in Joel five times this key concept. The Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord. What is the Day of the Lord? Well, it was known in the Mideast in that time, it was kind of legendary, that a great sovereign ruler who was truly great, could win a battle in one day by simply showing up. So the great day would be when the sovereign king would come in His royal majesty to dwell among His troops. And the moment he shows up, that's the end of the battle. It's the day of the king. That was common thought that we find in extra-biblical literature that's available in this first millennium B.C. So what Joel is saying is that our God is the king of the earth. And when He shows up, it's all over. It's as good as done. And he speaks about a day of the Lord. Now we're going to see as we study it that it's like looking at a mountain a mountain range uh, in the distant future. Distant, uh, uh, in the distance. If you look at the Rockies, from a great distance, you will see several peaks arising and they all look like they're flat just on the same on the on the same uh, latitude there, or longitude. But once you get up close to the Rockies, you realize what you were looking at was a mountain here and then a mountain there and a mountain there. And they just look like they were all together. And so when you're speaking of the day of the Lord, you've got like a mountain range. You've got two, at least in Joel, you've got two, uh two ranges. You've got the day of the Lord that's coming in the very imminent future, that's right before us, this one form of the day of the Lord, which only pictures the last day of the Lord when He shows up again. And we're going to see how Joel takes one to explain the other and that they're both important and that we live in the view in the life of both of these events coming to take place. So Joel is clearly addressing the southern kingdom. Whereas Hosea was addressing the northern kingdom, the Samaritans, as we would know them later in history, those in the north. Now, uh, Joel is addressing those in the south sometime later, probably 130 years later. And he's addressing them with a concern about what's about to happen to them, how they need to live in the light of it, and how they need to live in the light of that ultimate day of the Lord when he shows up and it's all over as the sovereign king. So what we see in there in the first verse is all that we know about Joel. But here's what we get. Two basic thoughts. We're going to go all the way from 1-1 to two 17. We'll go as far as we can. But there are two concepts. The first thing is this. In verses 1-20, through 20, God is teaching us that natural disasters should cause us to call upon the Lord. What is this natural disaster? It is the locusts that are going to be coming to Israel and devouring everything. And basically, Joel is using this as an illustration of some human locusts that will be coming soon to devour everything. And there's a way in which you ought to live if that is about to happen to you. Now, let me give you a contrary example. We just had something like locusts. that would be the equivalent of these locusts that happened on the Gulf Coast. That was a total wipeout for the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, total wipeout for New Orleans. So we have no question that was a massive disaster. Now, when you get to locusts, that is what happens. There was a, there was a locust infestation in 1915, 1915, that'd be almost you know 90 years ago it was exactly 90 years ago in Israel or Palestine and Syria. So all the way from the border of Egypt, all the way over to the Taurus Mountains, there was this massive locust invasion. And what locusts do is they they come in and the females that are about two and a half to three inches long, they come in and they will then drill a little four inch hole in the soil, and they will put a hundred eggs in that little four inch uh that little four inch hole that's about as broad as a pencil lead, and that there are a hundred eggs in there. Within the scope of a square yard, they will plant about 50,000 eggs. And then they continue to move on and eat things as they go. But these young locusts then grow up. And before they have wings, they just will crawl around like large ants. and Then they'll molt. And then they'll have wings and they'll hop like grasshoppers. And then they'll molt again and then they can fly like their mothers did. Meanwhile, what happens is these locusts will devour everything within sight For about 100 or 200 yards per day. And they just, uh, if you, there's a National Geographic article actually in December 1915 that describes this. And it just, they say they just, they take the vines and just clean it of all of its leaves, all of its bark, and even chew off the small branches. I mean, they just devour it. Now, that's the kind of thing that happened with Katrina. Now, what kind of responses did we get from Katrina? Well, there there was a variety of responses. But isn't it interesting that some of the responses were like this? Well, you know, people didn't take care of us like they should have. And of course, people didn't, did they? There was severe criticism of the government. And the two governments, city, state, federal, are all accusing each other. Look at that go. It's like this. So that's what we learned about the disaster. That the state government's better than the federal government, or the federal government's better than the city government, or That's what we're all interested in, isn't it? Actually, a good, serious evaluation of Louisiana. That's what we all wanted out of this. That's what we're getting. And uh, so we see that. And then do we see anybody ask the question, you know, what would be, what should we take to heart about this? Uh, Should we, maybe the Gulf Coast shouldn't just be thriving on an economy based on ripping off the poor and the mathematically challenged. Maybe we ought to develop an economy that's based on something that's edifying, that really elevates people, and rather than taking advantage of them and their addictions, maybe we ought to think about how to give them serious employment in a way that builds for the future. No one has, I haven't seen anything in the paper that even seriously questions. Maybe New Orleans could ask a few questions. I won't go into any great detail. But if this happened in Memphis, I think there may be some questions that ought to be asked. Has anyone said, well, you know, this really provides an opportunity for us to just change the way that we're doing things from the old ways, some of which were not very good to new ways, even just using common sense. There's some things, some changes that can be made. Can we take an opportunity out of this and rebuild in a way that really glorifies God? Has anyone really asked those kinds of questions? It's kind of like a person who gets cancer. First question, why me? Well, that's perfectly natural. Or, you know, God must not like me. You know, So now I'm going to blame God. You know, it's all His fault. And He doesn't like me, and this is not meant for my welfare. Or I'm just going to shrivel up, and I'm not going to communicate with people, and my life is over, and I'm going to feel sorry for myself. Or I'm just going to be angry and resentful. Or, 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 come up with all kinds of responses to your financial disaster, your health disaster, or your grief and sorrow. How do you respond to these things? What Joel is showing us, of course, in Joel's case, he has a word from the Lord. We don't have a word from the Lord specifically about what Katrina means, nor about what your difficulties mean. What we have is a way of approaching them, an array of questions that can be asked and an array of opportunities that can be exploited in your own disaster that come to us from the situation that Joel is facing where these locusts are coming in and just wiping them out. And Joel is giving us an interpretation of the divine meaning of this episode in their history. Which is simply to say, let's ask the question, what would God be saying to us in this? Now, once again, in Joel's case, it's clear because he has a word from the Lord that's specific. And we must sing in a lower key because we don't have a revealed word from the Lord. We have a framework of thinking. And I want to suggest that those who are following the Lord, first thing we want to do is be sure that we're in a repentant mode. This is, we talked about turning to the Lord in Hosea, 130 years before this. Same principle. When things are happening in your life, turn to the Lord. Don't turn to yourself, ultimately, I'm going to beat this cancer. Yeah, okay. Beat it. Two years, five years, ten years, thirty years. Okay, great job. Then it's over. You lost again. You are not going to beat cancer. You're not going to beat death. Now, you can beat self pity. You can beat giving up. You can beat being angry and bitter. But you can't beat death. It's going to get your body in the end. Now, you beat it eternally, don't you? So we can say, where is your victory, O grave? Where is your victory, O death? We stare death in the jaws and we, we tell them where to go because of eternity. But in this life, you're not, you're not going to beat it. So what do you do? You repent. You'll turn to the Lord. That's the whole point of a disaster. Disaster. And and it's just unfortunate as I look at these disasters in front of us and I see we're missing all kinds of opportunities in our own personal disasters, just like this country is missing an opportunity with a natural disaster. Certainly a natural disaster, what we've seen is a massive response from many people to show compassion. Wonderful. That's great. That's what I'm talking about. There's repentance. Instead of saying, you know, these people probably deserved it. We say, you know, the one who really deserved it is right here in Poplar and Goodlett sitting in his office. You know, he's the one who should have been hit by Katrina. And that's, that's the view of someone who's in a repentant mode, that I'm the one who should have experienced a disaster. Now, my role is to love and have the same compassion upon him that God does. And that's the reason that people are giving. That's the positive side of the response to disaster. There is a, an example of someone who's turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? But there's also a view when disaster is happening to you, you need to look to him and repent. I have a friend whose wife in February was diagnosed. Uh, you physicians, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it's acute melogenous leukemia. Which, just for those of us who don't know medicine, that's bad. It's real rapidly growing, very aggressive leukemia. And the numbers don't look so good when you get it, frankly. Some of you here may, may have had it. And uh, her, you're looking for uh, matches with your family for stem cell uh, uh, transplants and so on. And hers didn't match. And so she had her own stem cells frozen and went through all that you know, bone marrow transplant, all that kind of stuff. And it turns out she's doing, she's doing well now. But, you know, I'm close enough to them to have been in email correspondence over some distance for a number of months. And I, I wish I could just, just unfold their lives for you over these past nine months, uh, eight months, of how God has just graciously dealt with them, brought their family, which is already a good family, closer together, given them a deeper love and appreciation for each other. One of the children of, of the mother changed her work lifestyle, and after she did so to be able to help her mother, she realized, you know, she was too busy anyway. And now she's devoting more time to her family and her son who loves his mother has understood more deeply than ever how much he loves his mother and all of them have learned that you cannot control this that there's no you can't get making a political alliance to create you know your own security you're 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 vulnerable you're you're open before this world of disasters you need the lord and how they've all their hearts have just been drawn closer and closer to the lord and how the lord has used them to witness over and over again at every difficult moment when the white blood count was just soaring into the tens of thousands, when the siblings' uh, matches were not there, with all the low points, all the difficulties, how they just confidently and joyfully continue to move through it. Why? They have an eternal perspective. And this is the point we're going to deal with in Joel. There are really two things that we're dealing with so far. Number one, Hosea. The most important thing about a man is what you think about God. And the most important thing to know about God is His grace. And secondly, you've got to have an eternal perspective on your life in order to live this life in, this, in these days. If you've got your life strategy contained to three score and ten, you cannot live this life the way it's meant to be lived. You've got to live your life in the scope of eternity. And when you look, for example, in Paul's instructions about how to live a holy life in Colossians 3 the first thing He addresses in Colossians 3 is to be heavenly minded. You've got to stretch your perspective way out there. And then the disasters that are occurring to you are not final disasters. They're not ultimate disasters. They're part of God's shaping and molding us to get us and the others that He loves ready for a place He's prepared for us. There's a grand scheme here. And what Joel is trying to do with, with His hearers, and we'll pick up on this next week, He's trying to show them that whether it's locusts or whether it's the Babylonians who are the human locusts who will come in and invade, or whether it's the final day of the Lord when Jesus Christ comes in all of His glory, we see beyond all those things to a grander picture. So that ultimately, no, no one likes to have locusts in their backyard. No one likes to have drought. No one likes to be broke. No one likes to be bankrupt. No one likes to have cancer. No one likes to be bereaved. But when we have an eternal perspective, the Lord lifts up our vision to see bigger things and therefore He will use us powerfully in the midst of a disaster. And that's what He's doing with Joel. Joel's got it. Therefore, he's able to rise up when the locusts are invading and say, let me give you a word from the Lord on this. And he's able to interpret. Do you realize the followers of Christ, the followers of Jehovah, are meant to be the interpreters of what's going on around us? Instead of squabbling with each other, or feeling sorry for ourselves, or judging other people, or withdrawing, or just trying to protect ourselves. No. We rise up and we interpret and we serve. That's what Joel is doing. That's what he's calling upon us to do. And the first thing that we'll see next time is that when these things happen, the first thing we ought to be thinking about is not out of a sense of being condemned, low self-esteem, being ashamed, none of that. But Lord, as Your beloved Son, what do You want to do with me in this? And that would be the question for us to ask here when Katrina hits in New Orleans. Lord, as Your beloved Son, what what do You want to do with me? How do You want me to respond? Or when disaster happens to me, Lord, What's my next step to honor you? What is it you want to teach me? How can I rebuild in a way that really glorifies you and sets forth your attributes of love and mercy and compassion? This is what the meaning of tragedies are for those who have the eternal perspective. We'll pick that up next time. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the prophets and your voice that has spoken through them to us in our own day. Father, our prayer continues to be that You'll make us the prophets of our day as You promise even in the prophecy of Joel that the Spirit will be poured out upon sons and daughters. The Spirit will be poured out upon old men who will be visionaries and young men who will boldly stand up and see things that no one else can see because it comes from the Lord. There will be a day of great visioning and great repentance. Lord, help us to be the prophets of our day. Help us to find our voice as we leave here to serve in a day of much hurt, much difficulty, much tragedy. Help us to see your hand and your sovereign kindness over all the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.